Okay. So we can get started with the talk. So again, this this is part of our three months on taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And this month, February, at least on Sundays, we'll be talking specifically about what it means to take refuge in the Dhamma. So I want to offer a few words about just what that phrase means um, to me. This is a sort of a personal reflection and also taking from uh, the Dhamma itself. When we talk about taking refuge, another way of thinking about that is remembering. Remembering the truth, right? Refuge in the Dhamma. Another translation of Dhamma is truth. So remembering the truth, remembering what we know and what we know to be true from our lived experience, from what we've been taught, from what we've learned. And we do this, or at least I think of doing this, particularly at times that are difficult. Right? At times when we're caught, at times when we're really absorbed in what's going on or really stuck in a moment, stuck in an emotion or being told, you know, we're telling ourselves a story. It's at those moments when this taking refuge, remembering, oh, okay, stepping back, remembering the truth, remembering the Dhamma, that that can be important. Another way of thinking about it is as refreshing enthusiasm for practice, right? It's sort of a renewal of our interest, you know, when things become stagnant, we take refuge, we kind of, we, we freshen up that interest, that enthusiasm. We remember why this practice is something that is important to us. And yet another way of thinking of taking refuge is as resourcing, right? Finding those supports that are offered in the Dhamma that help us continue, you know, this is when we feel stuck, when we don't know what to do next, when we're feeling stagnant sometimes or listless in our practice. Um, this is another way. This is resourcing. What can I bring from this uh, practice, from, from the knowledge uh, that I've acquired to help me move forward? So when we think of the Dhamma, another translation, there's one is truth. The other is the path, right? This is the path. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this rowboat analogy. So I, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, yeah, I was um, bringing up this analogy in the ways I think of, you know, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And I'm sort of imagining the whole journey is, you know, you started off, you know, you're stuck in a rowboat in the dark <laughs> and you're in the ocean and, you know, maybe all you've experienced is the ocean. All you know is you're in the ocean and maybe you'd like to find something different. And you don't even know maybe at this beginning point if there is a such thing as land, right? And the way I think of the Buddha in this is kind of a lighthouse, right? You know, it's as though you're seeing an example of what could be at the end of your journey. You know, this is an example of enlightenment. It's a lighthouse. It both tells you there's land out there somewhere. And it also gives you a sense of the direction you need to go in, right? It says, oh, okay, that land is there. That's where I need to paddle. You know, the Buddha is this example. In that same analogy, the way I think of the Dhamma 
is as the path, right? Once we see that lighthouse or we see a moon or some such, you know, we, well, with the lighthouse, you, you see a path of light uh, between it and the boat that you're in, right? You get some illumination on what's ahead of you. You might see the rocks. You might see, you know, the little island you've got to navigate in between on your way from here to there. Uh, you see the currents. And you're given a route. This is how you go from here to there. So in that analogy, this, this is just the way I think if it's helpful for anyone. I think of the Dhamma as, okay, this is that, this is that illuminated path. This is, this is my instruction for how to move forward. So I want to spend the rest of this talk um, talking about specific ways to take refuge in the Dhamma that have been present for me. So when I personally think of taking refuge in the Dhamma and, you know, the actual Dhamma, the, the, the actual parts of this knowledge that have been helpful for me, where I go to are the lessons of non-clinging, non-aversion. So we know this as, so clinging and aversion are flip sides of the same coin, right? You know, clinging is when we are grasping at things, you know, things in our lives that we've, uh, you know, we desire, we come to become attached to. And aversion is kind of the opposite. Just as we move towards things, we have this greedy energy towards things, we also push away from things. There are things that we reject in our lives, and we move in the opposite direction, push away. And really, they're, they're sort of flip sides of the same energy in this, in the Dhamma. So I want to start by talking a little bit about aversion and specifically non-aversion, the idea of not being averted, not pushing away. You know, in our lives, we can often think that everything is falling apart or everything's wrong, or we can see things that are unhealthy, specific things that seem wrong or unhealthy that cause us to push away. And while some of this navigation can be you know, wise, really move towards and away from things. If we just push things away before fully accepting, before understanding that they're real and they're true, we don't learn. We don't learn as much as we could from these experiences. And the alternative is really embracing everything, even the unpleasant, as an opportunity to learn. So how do we do that? The Dhamma offers us advice here. We, first, when we're feeling just a push away from something, a revulsion from something, a no um, in ourselves, we can start by going to the root experience, right? Rather than going to the forms, to the stories, to the ideas in our heads, the beliefs we have about these things, what does it feel like? You know? What are the emotions? Beneath the emotions, what are the feeling tones, the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant in our body, right? And then we begin to see this experience. We gain a little space to see the experience in maybe a less charged way, you know, as just kind of a thing that's happening. And then I think we can begin to learn from it, right? Once we create this space. 
So I spoke a little last Monday, for those of you who are there, on a Pema Chodron quote, and that's a lie for me. So I'm going to repeat parts of it here, too, um, and maybe go into a little bit more detail. So Pema Chodron, uh, who is uh, a Buddhist monk, uh, nun, has this to say about difficult things. She writes, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. Where it is that we're holding back. They're like messengers that show us exactly where we're stuck. Right? So these are, it's like you're shining a, a flashlight on some part of you whenever you feel stuck. So when you feel these things, can you feel just the tension of it? You know, underneath the elaborations of these emotions, like disappointment, we can distinguish that from embarrassment and irritation and fear and all of these things. If we feel the way in which we can get stuck with those things, you know, we're we can see maybe the potential right away that, oh, maybe there is something called unstuck. <laughs> maybe there's, maybe we're rubbing against something and we can learn from that and eventually make this a more fluid experience, eventually reach equanimity with these things, right? So what I really like about the way Kama Chodron talks about this is, you know, she goes beyond this notion of just equanimity, you know, being okay with the good and the bad, treating them as equal. She, she has this more radical idea that, you know, you know, these bad experiences, these things we call bad news are actually the moments to be celebrated. Like we can learn from pleasant experiences, but we can especially grow from the unpleasant ones. It's a good thing that's happening at some level, right? I'm always reminded when I mention that also of someone I used to, uh, be in Sangha within DC and I used to live in Washington DC and I used to go every Sunday to a different Sangha there and there was a woman there who told this really moving story about how her relationship to traffic and driving and you know she's a really impatient driver and you know she would often you know plan things so that she only had exactly enough time to get to where she was going and so everything had to go perfectly on her trip and, you know, everything, and we can all, we can all feel this into this if we drive, right? You know, when something unexpected happens or someone's driving slowly or, you know, there's an accident or something, we often feel first this sort of feeling of an impediment or something blocking our route. And for her, she had a particular frustration with red lights, okay? So on her commute to work, whenever a light would be red, she would, oh, she just Hated it. She hated this stopping at a red light, the light not being green, this waiting there, taking away her precious time. And so she was a meditator, and this was something that she decided was an object of focus. She wanted to, she wanted to really open to this experience, and she started to really feel into how she felt at every red light when she had to stop the car. And she would notice, okay. This is the feeling in my body. My breath gets a little agitated. My blood pressure goes a little up. And slowly she started to notice other things. Okay, oh, there are all these other people in cars around me. I'm surrounded by all these people. They were actually very close to me in this moment. We're all still together waiting at this light. She began to take 
in a bit of her surroundings at each of the lights. And it got to this point where she started to really love the red lights. <laughs> she, she started to look forward to being at red lights and she called it her red light practice. You know, she would get there and she'd be delighted to feel this. And I, I'm always reminded of that story when I talk about this Emma Chodron, uh, you know, uh, urging uh, us to, you know, to actually treat these as good opportunities because she literally was able to make this a pleasant, this worst experience became a pleasant experience. Um, I always was touched by that story, you know, and so in my personal life also, this has been very present in me for the, in the last year, and I've talked a little bit about this, but in the last year I went through a divorce, I lost a job, there were all these circumstances in me that were changing, you know, and so in a very physical way, you know, where I lived shifted, who I was around, what, what were my routines, what did I do when I woke up? What was, what was surrounding me? All these things were foreign and different, and all these emotions go through. And there's, you know, there was this delicate and unpleasant business of finalizing the details of the divorce. There were all kinds of things going on. And it's easy to describe, you know, some of the things in that past year as good and some of them as bad. But, you know, if I, I really took seriously how much other advice here. And if I noticed, I noticed if I saw these things as just change, it was this wonderful opportunity to sit with change and watch your body's reaction to change, your mind's reaction to change. You know, in the body, some things feel good and some things feel hard. And it was fascinating also because it's not like these hard things just vanished. You know, when I took this perspective, oh, there's something in my body. You know, part of me really thought, oh, well, what's supposed to happen here is it's supposed to vanish. It's supposed to go away. I'm supposed to be filled with equanimity. And that wouldn't really happen. It, you know, it, it, uh, it would take a long time. Um, they didn't just vanish. But, you know, I have to say, they felt a bit more the way we deal with a physical injury. Like suppose, you know, suppose our, you know, we get scuffed or we, you know, we get a cut from using a knife in the kitchen or whatever it is. And, you know, at first there's blood and there's a scab and the way we see those injuries heal over time. And, you know, as adults, you know, as, as children, of course, those things can feel catastrophic. As adults, you know, we can, we often have a bit of equanimity about those things. We can kind of watch the, the scab heal and be a little fascinated by it and gain a little distance from it, right? We feel the pain, but we have a little distance. And I found that these sort of big emotional things could be really very similar. You know, there's a little, just like we, you know, there's a little pain and you watch a wound scab over. You can kind of feel these things inside you changing slowly over time, a very hard emotion, a feeling that felt very firm, very uh, intransigent. Uh, you'd watch it, you know, over a long period of time, just kind of soften. And just like, you know, and they would change in strange ways, like just like a healing wound, you know, there's a point where sometimes it's itchy, right? You get this whole other sensation. Sometimes these things would morph into different sensations. And eventually these things fade, right? They fade in intensity. And maybe you're not the same at the end, but you're not really worse off if you really are stepped back and looking. You're just in a different state. And if you got to watch the process, here's the real thing of it. If you really got to take this moment to observe these changes, like as I did as I was watching over this year, learn from it, 
in the deepest ways, you can become much better off, right? You really do get to see yourself. You, you get this rare opportunity. Things are really in upheaval to see things, to see, you know, you learn a lot about what your body and mind do. So this applies really widely, not just to my experience. We could think of the process of growing old. We could think of the process of losing a loved one. Really, any change we have in life, right? You know, anything, especially these big things, we're really given an opportunity. So speaking personally, of course, in this year, there were plenty of moments also when I was caught, right? And when I reacted either with emotion, you know, to what was going on in me, I told the stories, or sometimes you just tune out and you shut down, right? You know, there are moments when it, the heat is too high. And even then, there's some deep learning to be had. So uh, this is another quote from Pema Chodron. You know, this is something she says right after that previous quote. She says, each day we are given many opportunities to open up or to shut down. The most precious opportunity presents itself when we've come to the place we didn't think we could handle whatever is happening. It's too much. It's gone too far. There's no way we can manipulate the situation to make ourselves coming out, coming out looking good. <laughs> That's being nailed by life. The place where you have no choice but to embrace what's happening or push it away. Right? So she's referring to this choice we get at these moments. If we can be mindful and we see the heat rising, we see this tense moment, we realize if we can feel a little spacious that there's a choice. Embrace, push away. And she goes on to say this, which may be a little surprising, or at least it struck me as a little surprising. What's encouraging about meditation is that even if we shut down, we can no longer shut down in ignorance. Even if we shut down, we can no longer shut down in ignorance. We see very clearly that we're closing off. That, and that in itself begins to illuminate the darkness of ignorance. We're able to see how we run and how we hide and keep ourselves busy so that we never have to let our hearts be penetrated. And we're also able to see how we could open and relax. So she's saying even when we're given that choice and we choose, no, I'm shutting down right now. If we see that we're doing that, we're already on the path out of suffering. We're, we're, that's, that's growth of its own. You know, and I can definitely see doing this in the past year. There were times when I chose to distract myself, right? And I'd find myself, you know, for me, it would be, I'd suddenly find myself in these moments staring at my phone and scrolling compulsively through some nonsense that I didn't really care about at all, you know? And even in those moments, I can remember, you know, it's a pretty recent memory, you know, I can remember both scrolling and sort of, you know, not recognizing that, oh, I'm doing this thing, and also not stopping. <laughs> I'm still kind of moving my finger, and I'm doing this, and I'm absorbing this thing, you know? So I didn't always even choose in that moment, oh, you know, it didn't mean just because I was being mindful 
of doing this distraction of the shutting down that I stopped. But it did change my view about what I was doing in some subtle way. Like it doesn't even matter if I recognized it at the moment. Over time, I can notice that if I'm mindful as I notice I'm doing this, this scrolling, my view is slowly changing about the choice. You know, for one thing, I probably check out just a little bit less by noticing more than I'm doing. You know, because sometimes I would like realize, oh, this isn't really helpful. I'm not really interested in this thing I'm reading about. There's no, there's nothing I'm learning about the world that's important <laughs> in the scrolling I'm doing. And I actually just pull out sometimes, right? But sometimes when the compulsion is strong, or when it feels just really good, sometimes it just feels really good to be distracting myself or, I don't know, playing Wordle or something like that. I'd keep going. And I, I, it felt a little bit like I was choosing to keep going. And first of all, I, I personally think it's great to check out sometimes and take a break from the heat. You know, when we choose that, we're often doing something good for ourselves in a moment. But also, during that moment, because I was a little bit aware of what I was doing as I was choosing, I get to learn a little bit about what my body and mind are like, what they enjoy, what they crave. Oh, this is something that feels, oh, this is one thing I really decide right now I want to do. I'm going to continue doing this. Interesting. My body likes this. My body craves this. It makes it feel good. You can also notice when it no longer feels good, right? Sometimes what that gave me is the ability to know, okay, now I'm done scrolling. Now I've moved from this being a pleasant activity, which it was at the beginning, to now it's just unpleasant. I'm just feeling trapped in this. I don't even enjoy it anymore. It just feels like a compulsion, right? Sometimes you stop at that moment. And sometimes you don't. But even when you don't, you learn something. This was the moment when it was no longer pleasant. All of that is growth. I think that's at the essence of the message that Chodron is talking about. All of that is growth. Okay, I don't want to go on and on. And so I'm going to think about what I want to say and what I have left here. What I wanted to talk about a little bit, we've talked this whole time, just to step back, about... This side of the coin of clinging that is aversion. So I wanted to talk about the other side of the coin. We've talked about aversion and what it is to be non-averse. Now I want to talk a little bit about grasping or clinging and non-grasping and clinging, right? This is the flip side of the Dhamma here. To speak very briefly, you know, we know we, a couple of years ago, we did this whole thing on 12 links in the chain of dependent origination. And one of the things that comes from that is we learn in detail the process by which we come into clinging. You know, at a basic level, we have senses. There are the six sense doors, which are our five senses and thinking. And, you know, from those, we come into contact with the world come into contact with experience. When we come into contact, what emerges is a feeling tone, right? This is a very basic pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutral that we feel when we come in contact. From there, we sometimes go into craving, oh, something felt good. You start to want it. You start to reach for it. 
crave. From there, once we crave and we get something, we can cling, we can come into attachment. From attachment, we go to this next stage of becoming. We create whole identities, these subtle identities around these things we've attached ourselves to. These whole senses of me, I am this, I'm like this. This is my personality. This is who I am at work. This is who I am in my family. All these identities, right? So one thing I got to see in this past year was how I got a really good glimpse of how craving becomes attachment on two sides of the coin. You know, one is I got to see how the removal of all these things in my life, you know, where I live, the neighborhood I was in, the people I was around, um, the way in which I related to them. You know, all these things changed my identity with my old job. There's a whole identity associated with who I was when I did that. You know, I got to see how you're affected by the removal. And that really highlights the identities and the attachment. You get to see how you've kind of gotten stuck in these ways of being a certain way. And now I kind of get to see how new attachments are forming, right? Like I'm becoming attached to this new place where I live and what it's like. Like I like the way the kitchen is organized, right? You know, I've, I've got all my breakfast items in one corner and I've got labels that say this is the granola and this is the sliced cherries. I really, I really went to town with really organizing my kitchen and my areas. And I, I, I got very excited by, by putting things in these ways. I like how it looks now and I like how everything's been put. And I start to see my new attachment. As I put people into my life and my space, son comes over and he does things. My partner comes over, she arranges things. I see how I suffer the disruption, these new attachments. You know, someone puts sliced almonds in the sliced walnuts jar or the cut walnuts jar or arranges the dishwasher the wrong way, right? You know, it's crazy to see how these things are forming because all these things are so recently in my life. You know, everything was kind of swept clean and replaced with what's there now. And I have this whole new way of doing things. And yet, I just, you know, I've just gotten to feel like I got the hang of this whole change thing. And now I see, oh, my body and mind are reattaching. They're reassociating themselves with this whole other way of being. It's just what they do. You know? It's fascinating. So what do we do here? How does taking refuge in the Dhamma help? Well, this is about remembering. We remember the truth. We remember the path. We reconnect these deeper truths, these more important things, right? We can cultivate qualities that loosen the grip of these things, these feelings we get, and we're attached and we're being pulled from by our attachments. There's mindfulness. Just by being aware of these things, we lessen their hold. We can also cultivate qualities that just loosen the grips of these attachments that our bodies and minds so naturally go towards. Right? We have right view, right resolve, connecting with our higher selves, our higher values. Thinking about what's really important, in my case, is it the sanctity of my dishwashing organization system or is it letting people into my life? even if they disrupt those things. What's more important there? Right conduct, right action. When we're feeling lost and that our actions might not be the wisest, we can go back, we can take refuge in the guidance we're given for what's the right way to behave. We know this, 
right? Sometimes when we're feeling lost, we really need to go back to the sense of what our ethics are, what our values are. And when practicing and sitting in meditation, we can have this intention to cultivate equanimity, right? Just by having this intention as we sit, that we may see everything arise and be okay with it, we naturally start to move in that direction. And ultimately, when we do these things, we begin to see our patterns. We begin to see the same things happening over and over again. We learn from them. And over time, over these cycles, we slowly lessen and maybe ultimately free ourselves from their grip. Okay, thank you everyone. I wanna split us now into breakout groups. So we can, um, this will give us an opportunity for those who are new here uh, to discuss in a small group of maybe three or four people uh, just what comes up for you when you think of taking refuge in the Dhamma. And maybe you can use these other alternates of that phrase. What does it mean for you when you remember the truth of this path or you remember the knowledge that you've learned yourself through going through your life experiences. You know, what does it mean to take refuge in that knowledge? So anyone who doesn't want to sit right now, of course, um, this is a time when you could buy out. You could also choose to leave and come back at 11.15, where we'll open into a larger group. Um, so you could choose not to join a small group uh, and, and just come back for the discussion afterwards if that's more comfortable for you. But I would really encourage this part of it if you're willing to stay. Uh, it can be a wonderful experience to go in, come into Sangha, into community with others in a more intimate way. So I'm looking here and I'll assign groups now. Welcome back, everyone. So there's some time now. For any comments, thoughts, questions that came up during the talk or during uh, your breakout groups, just being mindful that anything anyone shared with you um, of a personal nature in the breakout groups be kept within the breakout group and not shared with the larger group. You can either unmute yourself or you can also raise your hand. Uh, which you can do, you can do the raise hand by clicking on reactions, which I see at the bottom, but is sometimes at the top of your Zoom. If you click on reactions, you'll see a raise hand function. You can use either one. Oh, I see Sharon. Please, Sharon, feel free to unmute yourself. Good morning. Um, I was just commenting in the group how I found so helpful uh, your comment about, you know, when we get physically hurt and this idea of being adults now the awareness that you know uh for for something like i shared that i, I burned my wrist i got a bad burn on my wrist a couple of weeks ago and it just watching how i watch the process of healing and the pain is getting less and there's some i think what what was valuable from your comment was underlying this is this faith that it is going to heal and so I think that could be a useful uh, metaphor in terms of 
thinking about emotional pain or mental torment or whatever it is that I think sometimes I'm missing the faith that it is going to heal the way I have that from something like a physical uh, scratch or burn or whatever. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sharon. What a great, what a great point to bring up. You know, we, I want to note also that sometimes in particular challenging experiences have this way of telling us that they are permanent (laughs) or that they won't go away. You know, challenging feelings have that. Yeah, we can remember, can't we? That, yeah, we've, we've, we've been through things before (laughs) and we, time, time does change them. Right? Even if we can do nothing more than wait. Yeah. Yeah. They get, they do fade. Thank you. That's a wonderful reminder. Feel free. Anyone who we have time for anyone else who wants to raise their hand or otherwise speak up. Lillian, Nikhil, please. Yeah, I um, I appreciated your discussion of the scrolling through the phone and sometimes bringing mindfulness to a situation and then just kind of ignoring it anyways, um, which I, I relate to that a lot. And, um, I appreciate how you kind of framed it as a learning experience because I think that really is, that's similar to how I've kind of, perceived it in the past as well, where sometimes I, you know, I'm aware that I'm aware that maybe what I'm doing isn't what I want to be doing. And it's not the approach I'm trying to cultivate with something, but in the moment, it's just, it feels really good. And it's sometimes that voice, the the mindful voice is just really small sometimes. And it it gets smaller when you realize that it's what it's trying to say. And I think just that the experience of going through that and realizing I knew what I was doing, I did it anyways, and I regretted it, is really powerful. It's really strong, um, and I think I've, I think I felt it recently with the right speech sometimes. Where um, you know, recently I was, uh, uh, I was texting with one of my friends, and we were kind of, uh, one of my friends is getting married, and they're playing a bachelor party, and one of the other friends of the friend group, we were just kind of complaining about how expensive it was getting, and. I could tell that uh, this wasn't a very mindful conversation. It wasn't, I didn't particularly want to be talking about my other friend behind their back and kind of like complaining about them. And it was, it wasn't, in, you know, necessarily like a harm men in any way other than just friends kind of grousing with each other. But at the same time, I, I didn't really want to be doing it. And that voice I was saying, you don't really want to be doing this. It's getting drowned out by, well, it's kind of fun. Um, but I think it's also just this learning experience of, it helps when that happens again, just realizing, Hey, like this, I was in this situation before I didn't do what I wanted to do. And I did it. I didn't like the outcome, like how it made me feel later on. And um, yeah, I think it's just whether, uh, yeah, I just appreciate that perspective of when you're able to bring mindfulness to something, whether or not you act on it in that moment, it's still this, this helpful learning tool. So. Yeah. Thank you, Nikhil. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story too. It's, yeah, I can easily relate to what you're saying. I, I'm sure everyone here can relate to something similar. You know, we've done something and we didn't really feel good about it. And you can feel the feeling in your body and you can even be mindful of that feeling, but you kind of go a little forward. And then what do we do afterward, right? You know, sometimes we can say, oh, well, I won't do that in the future. But even, even if we don't 
you know, even if we do repeat these mistakes, for one thing, it's this long view, right? Like over time, over the arc of time, we really are learning. You know, we might, we might go back and do these things over and over, <laughs> but there is a learning, especially if we can be mindful, especially if we are being mindful in those moments, you know, and the other thing is, I think it can offer, I think it can invite us to a little bit of self-forgiveness to see it in the arc. You know, we can be like, oh, well, there's my body and my mind doing this thing my body and my mind do. <laughs> I've seen this before. I see this again. Oh, here I am doing this. Oh, I can't even stop right now. I'm going to keep doing this. Okay, all right. I'm going to do this a little bit. I see I'm going to keep doing it for a little while. And maybe eventually, okay, I'm going to stop, right? Like we... That attitude is is different from the ways that we can beat ourselves up. And it can still be helpful, right? We're still learning and we may not do the thing in the future, but we're doing it without this sometimes unhelpful attitude that we can bring to ourselves, like almost a self-hatred or, a, you know, a, a really penalizing self-judgment rather than just sort of seeing that, like, you know, we're, we're kind of animals in these ways that do these things, right? Our bodies and minds just, they just do things, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I love that. I love that sharing, the sort of the wisdom that comes out of it. Thank you. Yeah. Julie, I see your hand up too. I'm probably going to, I'm probably not going to quote this really well, but I like what Jack Cornfield has to say. And, and I'll, attempt to paraphrase it's that our mindfulness has now ruined our mindlessness <laughs> because after we've gotten a taste of this this peace this equanimity this balance our ability to stay present to ourselves mindlessness never like you said never feels the same way ever again but <laughs> To have a lot of compassion for those times when we're, we're not able to stay in mindfulness. And of course, another translation for mindfulness is heartfulness. To be really centered in the heart, centered in the body. And to trust that at those times when we don't have the capacity for heartfulness, it's 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 not our fault. It just means we didn't have the capacity at that moment. And that as we continue our practice, we'll gradually build the strength and we'll, we'll build the capacity to be more heartful in the future. That takes a lot of strength and a lot of faith. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, thank you, Julie. I, I wouldn't do anything other than just exactly restate what you just said. So I think I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave your words alone. Thank you. Lauren. Oh, you're on mute, Lauren. I just have a second, but I, I shared about changing. I liked the, focus on changing that you spoke about uh, for taking refuge in the Dhamma, because certainly we're, we're always around change, but I was talking about aging and the change of aging doesn't necessarily have a healing end. It's more 
going to, well, on one level, it doesn't. And um, I've been looking at things like my garden that I used to be able to take really good care of. And I would just be out there pulling weeds and working all day. And it looked really good. And I look at it now and I think I don't have the energy and flexibility to do that. Um, and I, it makes me sad, the things that um, I'm losing. And I think about um, the five recollections really is where it is for me, which goes to heartfulness. I, I heard Sue talk about heartfulness. And I think that is a place that we need to go when we get to the level of the changes that do not uh, re, um, you know, recover in a certain way. And um, so I, I've, and depth, we really have to go deep. So um, there's a lot of different places for going to the Dhamma, but um these places that everything we care about, we will be separated from just having that as part of the Dhamma. This is the truth that is taking refuge in the Dhamma. And yeah, so that's, that's the path that I'm thinking about right now. I just wanted to share that. And thank you for sharing about heartfulness, Sue. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah. I, I think you're bringing up something really important which is, in a way, I see this as there's a distinction between when we talk about growth coming out of these experiences, we don't mean that they'll be reversed or that some of the things that happen in life aren't, you know, are, they're, impermanence is permanent, <laughs> right? These things just change. Death happens. When we lose a loved one, that's happened. That doesn't reverse. The circumstances of our lives don't change, you know. Some of the pains stay with us. And then there's another level on which when we think about our path and we think of growth, we can still take from these things. You know, the experience of growing old, you know, there are irreversible experiences you know, in our lives. And even as we go through those, the hope isn't that they will change or that we'll be done with them. I think where I get optimism is the hope that we can bring ourselves to this end of suffering by taking all of this as grist for the mill. You know, we can use all of this to transform ourselves. Even if, you know, we're... On it, you know, in our bodies, we're heading towards a cliff <laughs> and we're going over it. On our path over there, you know, can we entirely transform ourselves? Right? Can it be such that when we go over it, we just go over it? <laughs> I mean, that sounds radical, but you know, I think that's what's meant by the end of suffering. Yeah, I don't know. I, I love your bringing that up because it really speaks to the truth of how everything is inevitable in a lot of ways, right? There's, there's a lot that just doesn't go away. Thank you. And the five recollections.
Yeah, I was wondering what I was going to do for my talk next week, and I just think I found my topic. Yeah, really wonderful. Can't... There's so much more to say about that, and I felt that just in this moment. <laughs> so I'm so glad you'll be talking about that next week for us. Yeah. Okay, it's 1130, um, so I'm mindful of the time that people may need to leave. If you do need to leave right now, please please feel free to do so. Otherwise, I'll go through just a few announcements and an offering of metta. Uh, 